Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, it's a great privilege to introduce Jonathan Wolfe um, and his presidential address, which inaugurates him as, I think, <coughs> the 107th president of the Aristotelian Society. Um, and Joe is a hugely worthy addition to that list, which includes, amongst other famous names, Bertrand Russell, Susan Stebbing, J.L. Austin, Isaiah Berlin, and Peter Strawson, many others as well. It also includes several people in this room, um, who I can see in the audience uh, right now. And it's lovely to see so many past presidents here today to enjoy the free wine. Um, and I, I, it's a great honour for me to be joining your ranks at the conclusion of this talk. Joe is, of course, known to very many of you, but I'm going to say a little bit about him anyway. He holds the Blavatnik Chair of Public Policy at Oxford University, but before that he was in the Philosophy Department at UCL for very many years, I think possibly well over 30 years, pretty, pretty much continuously going all the way from an MPhil student in the mid-1980s to the Dean of Arts and Humanities. Joe's a moral and political philosopher, and he's not wholly unusual amongst moral and political philosophers in his engagement with real-world issues. In his case, these include poverty, disability, health, and the welfare state. But what is quite unusual about Joe is the extent to which he reaches out beyond the abstract intellectual considerations, consideration of those issues um, into the actual real world where these real issues confront actual real people. Amongst other things, he's served on the Nuffield Council of Bioethics and the Gambling Review Body. He's been an external member of the Board of Science of the Brit British Medical Association and a trustee of Gamble Aware. He's also written, amongst other things, a report for the railway industry on risk and one for the government on how to measure the value of life and health. And I'm sure many of you will have read and enjoyed, as I have many times, his column on higher education in The Guardian. Joe's a real role model, I think, for philosophers who want to use their hard-won knowledge and wisdom for the good of society. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Joe Wolfe, whose presidential address will be called Equality and Hierarchy. So thank you so much, Helen. I'm delighted to join the ranks with you as uh, one of the presidents of the Aristotelian Society. Um, I'm really delighted to be addressing the Society. I first addressed it in February 1991. And uh, I know at least one person in the audience today was there, John Skorupski, who was president, and took me for dinner and told me why my paper was wrong before the session, or at least some parts of it, and he was probably right about that. But I haven't yet been told why this paper is wrong, but I'm sure I will later on. Um, so I've been thinking about the problem of hierarchy for a little while, and I thought if ever there was an opportunity to discuss it, so on the right occasion, a presidential address was the right one. And so uh, social equality and the problem of hierarchy is my topic. And... Um, I'm, I'm not going to read the paper. I, I will uh, work through the themes. Uh, in this, I'm very influenced by a little clip I saw of the poet Dylan Thomas uh, doing a little poetry reading and stopping in the middle and saying, someone here is boring me. I think it's me. <laughs> and uh, that is what I have when I read out a paper. So uh, you'll find hesitations, things going a bit wrong, but uh, that's the price you pay for me not being quite so bored about it. 
Okay, so um, I want to start by locating what I'm doing in a broader set of debates about equality. And you know, many of you will know that within the theory of equality, there are now two, uh, well, one way of distinguishing the positions in the field is to distinguish those people who concentrate primarily on issues of distribution, one way or another, and those who tend to think of equality more in social or relational terms. And so on the first side, we have uh, people like Ronald Dworkin or Jerry Cohen. Uh, Cohen said that he takes for granted that an equal society is one that distributes something equally. But what is that thing? Is it money? Is it standard of living? Is it need satisfaction? Is it well-being? And so for distributive uh, egalitarians, the main question is, what is the currency of egalitarian justice, as Cohen put it? What is that thing that everyone should have equal shares of if we're going to have an equal society? Now, opposing distributive equality is the theory of social equality, or more commonly known, I think, as relational equality, that says that the essence of equality is not so much what people have, but how they relate to each other. And so from the social point of view or the uh, relational point of view, distribution looks almost fetishistic. By focusing on what people have, we're forgetting about what it is to relate to others in the way in which we should do in a society of equals. So for relational egalitarians, the main question is how do we create a society of equals? And so this is a project that Elizabeth Anderson and Sam Scheffler have particularly been associated with, but it goes back a long way. Uh, in the UK, David Miller and Richard Norman have been arguing for similar views for several decades, and uh, Tawney in the early part of the century and going back into the 19th century as well. Now, um, the idea of social equality equality being a matter of relations between people, strikes a chord, I think, with many people who hear it, but they will typically have the same question, which is, well, what are these relations? What are the relations between people that constitutes the bond of a society of equals? And there, um, relational egalitarians have had more trouble specifying what it is that constitutes the bond, the relational bond between people. And so uh, David Miller, for example, says that it is possible to elucidate the idea of social equality in various ways, but it's very hard to give a precise definition. Others have tried to do it in terms of uh, relating democratic theory to equality or uh, common citizenship, but the trouble is that Democracy is compatible with many views that wouldn't be considered those of social equality in this sense. So it's very hard to get a thick account of the relations which are not very uh, partial or illiberal. So, for example, there's a socialist, uh, Christian socialist tradition which talks about you know, brotherly love being the effective bond, but there are lots of things you can think that is wrong with that idea. So what is the positive idea of social equality? Well, it's very hard to say. And um, in my way of approaching the topic, I try to turn things on their head and say, well, we know what we're against as social egalitarians. We're against exploitation. We're against domination. 
we're against discrimination. We're against a whole host of asymmetric and alienating and exclusionary social relations, including hierarchy. And so how about just defining social equality as the absence of these negative relations? And so if you take that view, there are lots of different ways in which you could have a society of social equality. There's not one model of social equality. There are lots of ways in which you could have socially equal societies. But what they have in common is they avoid exploitation, domination, alienation, and hierarchy. Okay, so um, that's one debate, or one and a half debates. Uh, the debate between distributive and relational egalitarianism and also the difference between having a positive view of equality and a negative view in the sense of equality as opposition to inequalities. Now, there's another methodological debate I need to mention because this is important for me later on in the paper, and that is a debate between what is normally known in the literature as ideal and non-ideal theory. Now, the way this is typically portrayed is that people who believe in ideal theory uh, want to come up with principles of justice that apply quite generally. Whereas those who believe in non-ideal theory don't do that. Right? Uh, so there are various ways in which you can cash out the notion of non-ideal theory. Sometimes it's about individual motivation. Sometimes it's about starting where we are rather than in the imagination. Now, most political philosophy uh, that we study in philosophy departments has been ideal theory. And so if you think about Plato, if you think about Rawls, they're coming up with theories of justice that have wide application, not necessarily universal application, but application over a whole range of societies. Now, what do non-ideal theorists want? Well, there are a number of different ways of catching this out. Um, I should say I protest this way of making the distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory. Uh, I think it's prejudicial because it makes it sound like non-ideal theory is somehow second best, and ideal theory is the right way of going ahead. I prefer um, I, to contrast ideal theory with real-world theory, maybe not even theory, real-world philosophy. I prefer, that's not my best option, uh, my best option is to contrast real-world political philosophy with unreal political philosophy. <laughs> but I'm afraid I don't think that's going to catch on. So the neutral way of doing it is having ideal theory versus real-world theory. And then there's a question about which is prior, if that question even needs to be asked. So I'm doing real-world political philosophy. And there are three features of this that uh, are important for the paper. So the first is that um, real-world political theory is not context-free. It starts from where we are. Um, Bernard Williams once said that the task for political philosophy is not to work out the best society could be, rather the best society could be starting from here. Now, I think even that goes too far, um, and that we might not know what the best is starting from here. We might want to think about what is better starting from here. But I think you can see the difference. Ideal theory starts from nowhere, or nowhere in particular. I, uh, real world theory starts from where we are and works out how we can improve things given the situation that we're in. There are two other things I want to emphasize, and um, ideal theorists can believe 
what I'm going to say now or follow the methodology of what I'm going to say, but the type of real-world theorist I'm interested in must do. The second thing is to take account of human psychology, that um, individual humans are, after all, the agents who will act both to create laws and to follow them and follow other practices. We need to understand how humans will behave. And this leads to a third related idea, which is that we need always to take into account um, longer-term effects, and in particular, what can be called second-round effects. So uh, to explain this, it's very common for political philosophers, philosophers to see a social problem and think the answer is to create a law and then assume that everyone is going to follow that law once the law is created. If that were true, there would be no one in prison. Um, there are people in prison, therefore, that is not true. Um, the situation is that in some cases, people won't follow the law. So you might think you can solve a problem about drugs, maybe, or about gambling, areas I've worked on, by having new laws. But if people don't agree with those laws, many of them won't follow them. And so where you had one problem, or you thought you had one problem, a social problem, now you have two problems, you've got the same social problem and people breaking the law. And so um, you always need to think about how the world will react back. So sometimes I put this in, in that um, political philosophers often behave as if they're in a decision theory context. They've got these clear choices. You do this, that will follow. You do that, the other thing will follow. But we live in a game theory world, and you do this thing, and the world will react back to you in ways you may not have foreseen. Uh, and we need as much as we can to be thinking about those second round effects. What will happen if, how would we reply? Think of it more like a game of chess in which there are strategies and things coming back to you than a simple decision. Okay, so the, um, going back then to the issue of hierarchy, it's very important for me in my methodology, the negative methodology, to think that hierarchy is a bad thing from the point of view of social equality. That's part of the starting point. But that, in a way, is ideal theory. So in the ideal world, there will be no hierarchy, you may claim. I'll come back to that just in a second. Um, but from the point of view of non-ideal theory, real-world theory, even if it is true that in the ideal world we should abolish hierarchy, it doesn't follow that that is exactly what we should be trying to do now because we're in a world full of hierarchy and what would happen if we tried to abolish those hierarchies? How would the world react back on us if, if we tried to do that? So that's something I'm going to think about more towards the end of the talk. Also, and the part of the motivation of this paper is that uh, you know, I've, I've given this introduction to the theory of equality several times. I, I've said that I'm opposed to hierarchy. In the question session, someone puts up their hand and says, surely I can't be opposed to all forms of hierarchy. Surely I can't be opposed to all forms. And as I say in the paper, that question normally comes from the senior professor in the room rather than the early career fellow. Uh, but that is not quite enough on its own to discredit it that there may be some reasons why we want some hierarchies for some purposes. Okay, so, um, second section of the paper, the manifestation of hierarchy. Uh, this really just takes us through some very well-known uh, thoughts about the existence of hierarchy in the world that we have. The pervasiveness of hierarchy was put very well by Michael Waltzer in the opening of his book, Spheres of Justice. Uh, this is on page seven of the draft. He says, 
Equality, literally understood, is an ideal ripe for betrayal. Committed men and women betray it, or seem to do so, as soon as they organize a movement for equality and distribute power, positions, and influence among themselves. So even movements for equality very quickly organize themselves into hierarchies. Some people in power, some people making decisions, some people making the tea. Um, so this is something that we need to acknowledge. And looking through various works of anthropology uh, by uh, anarchist anthropology, uh, anthropologists, no one really denies that hierarchy is pervasive through human society. Um, Harold, Harold Barclay wrote a book called People Without Government. I thought I might find him making claims that there are people without hierarchy. Well, no, he distinguishes government and hierarchy. And he says that in his studies, he sees four types of hierarchy emerging, even in uh, societies without government. Hierarchies around the big man, the technician, the holy man, and the old man. Um, Adam Smith uh, also has four categories, not the same. Personal qualifications, which would be some sort of merit. That doesn't sound so bad, except that Smith says that never actually happens. Um, then there's age, short of dotage, he adds fortune and birth. Okay, so um, I think there's no doubt that hierarchy exists and um, it exists in two forms. The anarchist Murray Bookchin made a useful distinction between hierarchical relationships and what he called hierarchical sentiments, which I think is, is helpful for me, because hierarchical relationships are the way hierarchies exemplify themselves in behavior Hierarchical sentiments are really the attitudes you have to other people. So I would imagine very few people here are in a hierarchical relationship with the royal family. I also think probably few of us have hierarchical sentiments in relation to the royal family. But there will be some people who look up to the royal family, even though they're in no relation of power with the royal family. I will come back to that. But it's very interesting how hierarchy manifests itself. Um, so James C. Scott talking about Malaysian peasant farmers, uh, noted how the hierarchy manifests itself in terms of visiting relations. So who visited who? And it would always be the poor visiting the rich. Um, Marilyn Fry has very similar observations about access. Who has access to you and who do you have access to? So you have access to your children's bedrooms, they don't have access to yours or only on your terms. Uh, the president has access to almost everyone. If he wants it, almost no one has access to the president. Uh, around the, uh, after the French Revolution, I read just uh, last week that tailors stopped visiting their customers after the revolution. And so this was a very interesting way of trying to normalize what had previously been a hierarchical relationship. That uh, you know, if the aristocrat called you, you said, come to my shop. You no longer went to their house. So that visiting, all, I, I don't know if it's a cultural universal, but it's very common in, in that hierarchies manifest themselves in those forms, and, and we could find myriad other ways. Okay, so liberal egalitarians have been concerned about hierarchy, and there's a type of liberal egalitarian orthodoxy that had developed and for a while I thought was all there was to it. The goal, of course, is social equality. We all want to be on a level. Um, 
we want to look each other in the eye, no one above, no one below. It's very interesting how these physical metaphors are used a lot, or sight metaphors about looking people in the eye. Shoulders coming in, come into quite a bit, who you rub shoulders with, who you march shoulder to shoulder with. And so we're full of metaphors for equality, uh, but maybe we've got less content to put behind those metaphors. But you know, Berthold Breck has the idea that what, you know, what the socialist wants is no one above them and no one below them. You don't want to look up, you don't want to look down. R.H. Tawney had the idea that the great enemies of equality, there were many enemies of equality, but they include snobbery and servility, looking down at people, looking up at people. And so from the liberal egalitarian point of view, all of that needs to be swept away, at least in ideal theory. But the, the consensus developing is that there are two types of hierarchy that seem to be justified. And this may be the basis of the challenge that was regularly put to me. So one of them is sort of hierarchies of esteem. And Karina Foray has written about this, um, as has Tim Scanlon and many others. And here the thought is that some people just have better talents in some areas. And it would be wrong not to give them praise, admiration for that. Um, the South African philosopher H.P. Losser has got this very nice way of putting one aspect of this. So what he says is that um, it, it's part of life for all of us to want to amuse or amaze others with our talents or skills, or be amused or amazed by others. And it would seem wrong to have a levelling where no one could have these special talents or get their recognition for those talents. But this view is very limited because it says you admire people for their qualities, intelligence, beauty, or whatever it is you're admiring them for, but there are no further consequences to that. You simply admire them for the possession and exercise of those qualities. Those are hierarchies of esteem. Scanlon goes further and argues that there can also be justified hierarchies of status. And he suggests that there are some occasions where an institution needs to assign different statuses to people for functional purposes. An army is the most obvious one. You might think a university is like that, though you could argue about that. But there are many areas of life where you want people in different ranks for functional purposes. And it may be that you need to pay people different amounts of money to do that. Maybe there are market arguments that say you have to pay people in the higher ranks more money to get the right people in those ranks. So it's a type of Rawlsian argument uh, joined with a Hayekian argument about market signals. So Scanlon thinks that there can be justified institutions with different ranks. But he argues, uh, he's got quite a long argument, which I'll summarize very basically. He argues that that is only justified if there's a type of genuine equality of opportunity for those positions. So that would go against an aristocracy or hierarchy through birth. So Scanlon says you know, there can be justified hierarchies in the sense that you pay the senior doctor more than the junior doctor and you esteem them more, uh, but only if everyone has an equal chance or at least the equal opportunity of acquiring that through uh, proper institutional means. Okay, so that's a consensus theory. And um, there are lots of different ways in which we can unpack that. What does equality of opportunity mean? How deep does it have to go? And so on. So there, there are going to be variations. But there is in the literature a type of focal 
acceptance that there are these two ways of justifying hierarchy, hierarchies of esteem and hierarchies of status. First related to exceptional talents or, or attributes, the second related to the functional necessity of a role. So what are the challenges to the liberal theory? Well, the first, maybe is the most obvious, is the challenge of, of overspill. Uh, that is, if you give someone a high rank in one respect, are they, is that not likely to leak over into other respects? So David Miller has the example, you know, so-and-so may be a better doctor, maybe the best doctor in town. That's a reason for me to go to, to seek that person out. Maybe it's even a reason for them to have a higher salary. But it's not a reason for anything else outside that domain. Then if you think, well, what is actually likely to happen? Well, if this person is respected as a doctor, maybe the person will be sought out more for their opinion when there's a political dispute. Maybe when there's a function in the church hall, they'll get the front seat and so on. So you start deferring to this person outside the original sphere they're, they're in. Those are innocent examples, but we see it all the time that people who have achieved preeminence in one area feel are entitled to equal preeminence outside that. Uh, Michael Walzer wrote an entire book about this, really. This is what Spheres of Justice is about, about the way in which people who achieve a high level in one area will tend to use that to dominate others in other areas where they don't have the same justification. So, yeah, for example, the most obvious case is you might think if you're good in business, you're entitled to more money, but that shouldn't mean you should have more political influence, but how are you going to stop people with more money having more political influence? And so there's the problem of overspill and how to stop it, which is extremely difficult to do. But um, there's another challenge to the liberal theory, which um, has not, as far as I know, been addressed. And this is really what I want to concentrate on for the time remaining. And that is, in a way, that the victory has been won much too quickly here. The, the thought is, the, the background is that you know, human beings have organized themselves into hierarchical societies. Um, social egalitarians, we say this is unjustified, except in these very limited cases of uh, esteem and when it's related to function. But um, there is a view that the need for hierarchy goes much deeper into human psyche and motivation than that. And um, I was astonished, actually, to find this view in Simone Weil, in her Need for Roots, which is a very unusual book. I wasn't reading it to uh, learn about hierarchy. I, um, actually, I'm not sure why I was reading it, but I was reading it. And um, she begins by talking about material needs. Uh, if, if you don't know about this book, she was, this was written during the Second World War. Uh, she had come to London. She was working with the Free French. And she was asked to write a sort of manifesto for French reconstruction after the war. So here she was uh, in Kent in the bitter cold winter. Uh, she was physically ill. And she, but she had decided not to eat more than the rations that Parisians were eating. And so she was deeply malnourished. She might have been sort of hallucinating when she was writing. So the need for roots is almost a spiritual work in some respects. And there are some very peculiar passages in it. 
So she begins by talking about the material needs of human beings, and these are the obvious ones, food, lodging, and you can tell what time of year she was writing and where she was writing because she talked quite a lot about heating and the material need for heating. Um, but she also talks about the needs of the soul, and she lists a whole load of needs of the soul. One of them is equality, and uh, she says that there, even though we should have role differentiation, there should be no reason why the professor should be given more respect than the minor, which is very similar to a social egalitarian view. But then, on the same page, she says that hierarchy, hierarchism is a vital need of the human soul, she says. It's a very short passage. I'll just read it out now. She says, it's composed of a certain veneration, a certain devotion towards superiors, considered not as individuals, nor in relation to the powers they exercise, but as symbols. What they symbolize is that realm situated high above all men and whose expression in this world is made up of the obligations owed by each man to his fellow men. A veritable hierarchy presupposes a consciousness on the part of the superiors of the symbolic function and as a realization that it forms the only legitimate object of devotion among their subordinates. The effect of true hierarchism is to bring each one to fit himself morally into the place he occupies. Now, it's very hard to read that after you've just read a passage extolling the virtues of equality. Very easy to dismiss it. Uh, you know, she had a strong religious belief. Maybe that's what is coming in through here. But it is interesting that she is arguing that um, hierarchy is justified not because of the individuals, the qualities of individuals, or because of the powers that the individuals have, but as symbols in their own right. And you know, her view seems to be that we need to live in a hierarchical society in order to maintain social order. Okay. Now, she gives no further details of this, so maybe she is just wrong about that. But it is a view I think we need to think about rather than just dismiss. And one area where it gets a certain amount of support is from uh, what has become known or what named itself social dominance theory, which um, is expressed in a number of works by uh, Sidanis and, and Prato. And they begin by making a distinction that few people in the social egalitarian literature have made, which is simply a distinction between individual hierarchy and group hierarchy. And so everything we have been talking about almost um, ignores the existence of groups and thinks about why would you have one individual above another individual. Uh, the, the individual has certain talents or attributes. It could be group membership, but typically that's not what people are thinking about here. Someone has certain abilities. They're a good doctor. They're a good business person. But um, Sidanius and Prasso claim that group hierarchy is ubiquitous in almost all human societies. Um, what they say is that um, every society that has achieved a productive surplus leads to a form of social domination of one group over another. So this is you know, rather like the Marxist theory that says once we have a surplus in the sense that not everyone has to work, class division divides, uh, comes into being, what they say is that division forms around three characteristics. Age is one. We've seen that before. Gender, uh, we haven't seen explicitly, interestingly, in Adam Smith or 
or Barclay, although it is implicit in Barclay, and what they call an arbitrary set feature. And what they mean is just anything, something is picked out. It could be religion, it could be skin color, it could be upbringing, birth, but every group above a level of subsistence has split itself into a dominant and a subordinate group, maybe more than one subordinate group. And what they say also is there have been attempts to abolish this in developed societies. For example, Soviet communism was an attempt, but it failed pretty badly. And they say every attempt to overcome group domination has led to disaster. Okay. So, um, are they right or are they wrong? Well, as a cultural fact, um, you know, this, this is a question for sociologists, for anthropologists. Is it true that every society has split itself into a dominant group and a non-dominant group? Um, we leave out sort of hunter-gatherers who haven't reached a, layer of a level of surplus. Where are we going to look for examples of societies that haven't formed themselves in this way? Well, yeah, normally we turn to Scandinavia when we look for anything to do with equality. Uh, anyone from Scandinavia will tell you they have not managed to avoid group dominance of uh, a type of arist aristocracy looking down on others and people from different ethnic groups. There are minority groups even within all Scandinavian countries. So um, this is very worrying from the point of view of social equality, that if human beings have a tendency to split themselves into groups, one dominant from over another, um, what are we going to do about that? Particularly when uh, the attempts to um, eliminate it have caused such problems. So as I have said several times, this is highly problematic from the point of view of ideal liberal egalitarian theory. Now there is some comfort in their work because they say, this is Sidanius and Prato, they, they say that um, people react differently towards hierarchy in their own society. So they say that some people are hierarchy enhancers and they want to increase the hierarchy wherever they can and others are hierarchy attenuators who want to reduce hierarchy and to eliminate it to some degree. And um, this yeah, it does divide also along the political spectrum, which makes uh, maybe left-wing leadership a rather problematic concept in its own right, because it needs a hierarchy, but you're going to put someone who's a hierarchy attenuator in there if you're going to get it right. Um, but what it means is that there are elements even... Uh, within their view, which, which says we can, to some degree, mitigate hierarchy. But why does hierarchy exist? Well, Simone Weil says that it's a need of the soul. Um, she doesn't say any more than that. I'm not in a position to comment any further on, uh, on what needs the soul has. Um, Sidanius and Prato talk about uh, evolutionary theory and... Uh, what is re required for reproductive success, particularly around gender. Um, and maybe there are some arguments they can give, rather standard and perhaps passe arguments now about sexual difference in reproduction. But it's very hard to see why that would lead to group formation of the type that they offer. 
And so the, uh, I didn't find within the writing a, a strong uh, model of how evolution would lead to the type of group hierarchy that they are discussing. Uh, Freud also discusses this. He talks about the human drive for aggression. Maybe all of these are the same thing, the need of the soul, uh, evolution and re reproductive success, the human drive for aggression. But all of these are speculative. And um, there is, I think, quite an alarming conclusion um, from Silanius and Prato that we have very strong evidence that societies do form into these dominant group hierarchies. But we don't really know why, I think. Um, or at least I don't feel I have come away from this literature with much of an understanding. So where do we go from here? Well, we have a challenge to social egalitarianism. Uh, although we have quite a neat little way of accounting for individual hierarchy in terms of esteem and functional need, group hierarchy is something that we cannot justify from an egalitarian point of view. It would be, in a way, the definition of uh, the relational egalitarian view to try to overcome group domination exactly of the form that appears to be so pervasive. But it is pervasive, and attempts to reduce it significantly have been disastrous, so it is claimed quite plausibly, and we have little clue what to do about it. So how do we move on from this? Well, ideal theory, I think, is stuck at this point. That if you want to say in the ideal world there will be no hierarchies, I can agree with you, but given that we seem to have them and we don't know how we've got them and how to get rid of them, what, where do we go from there? But the real world view, the non-ideal view, is in a somewhat better position because we start with a different question. We don't start with the question, what would be the ideal world? We start with the question, you know, what is wrong with this world and what can be done about it? And so Sidanius and Prato, from a liberal egalitarian point of view or social egalitarian point of view, have done a very good job of pointing out what's wrong with this world. They have said that there are people who are hierarchy attenuators. So obviously, um, they need to be given more power, more scope, or find ways of getting more power and scope to make changes. But from the point of view of real-world political theory, um, the moves from this point on are relatively straightforward. But what we need to do is to identify the most pernicious forms of hierarchy and attempt to mitigate or abolish them. So the most pernicious forms are probably forms of racism and sexism, maybe also discrimination against people with disabilities. The, the standard anti-discrimination fights, standard social movements fit quite well into this pattern. So we identify the most pernicious forms and attempt to mitigate or abolish them. Simone Vale was um, quite interesting on this point because she argues that if there are going to be hierarchies, and she thinks there have to be, it's much better if they're symbolic than if they're real. Um, so if we can identify those hierarchies that are doing the most damage, then we will be making some progress. And so um, what flows from the account I'm giving, I think, is we should look for the hierarchies that are the most damaging, uh, the hierarchies that are relatively easy to deal with, and also um, those hierarchies, the abolition of which would have the greatest consequences.
So in other work, I've talked about the connection between different forms of disadvantage. I've uh, you know, argued that certain things, if they go wrong in your life, that will lead to other things going wrong. The opposite, not quite the mirror image, is that if certain things go right for you in your life, that can lead to other things going well. So outside the realm of hierarchy, uh, you know, if you suffer from drug addiction, that's very likely to lead to loss of home, loss of job, and so on. So it's very important for social policy to prevent the formation of drug addiction. Once people become addicted, then just getting them off the drugs won't necessarily get their lives back together again. Other things are necessary for that. Uh, so that was a concept of corrosive disadvantage. With work with Avner Dishalit, uh, we also have the concept of what we call then fertile functionings. This is if it goes right for you, what else will go right for you as a consequence? So if you have a good set of uh, if you have a good social network, for example, that might help you get employment, might help you get housing, will give you support if in depression. Uh, and so there are certain things, if that goes well, other things are very likely to go well. So in that spirit, what we need to identify, and I don't know that the social science has been done on this, which is, you know, what are the forms of hierarchy that lead to other forms of hierarchy? So um, Simone Vale talks about symbolic hierarchies not being as bad as real hierarchies. So this would mean, for example, we should pay much more attention to discrimination, much more attention to exploitation than, say, to snobbery and civility. On the other hand, if snobbery and civility enables these other relations, then maybe we should start with the symbolic hierarchies. And so at the moment, I don't know if there's literature that tells us where to start. But anyway, the basic idea is, as I said, we should look for the most damaging hierarchies, those that are relatively easy to deal with, and those that are, uh, whose abolition will have the greatest consequential effects. I'll just turn back to the ones that are relatively easy. So remember the example of the doctor who was given uh, precedence for being a good doctor, maybe a higher wage, but then thought they had the right to other things in life because they had that level. Right? Now, this is something really almost of personal morality for each of us, in that we might think of ourselves as justified in our positions of power through a Scanlon uh, functional argument that uh, we work in organizations, they need ranks, but there are limits to what those ranks can do, should do, or limits to what those ranks can justify, and you know, we hear story after story after story of people who are using their rank for other purposes, uh, you know, pushing their weight around, uh, not behaving in a collegiate way to others, for example. You know, we, we have so many stories of that at the moment. So these are ways in which, in our ordinary life, each of us can be a hierarchy attenuator by realizing the limits to the hierarchies that are or may be justified. So, um, in conclusion, I want to turn to a um, little anecdote I heard many years ago and have not been able to trace, so I may have made it up, but never mind. I don't think I did because it's, this one's too good for me to have made up. And it concerns the American film critic, uh, Alexander Walker, who was known as Sandy Walker. And um, it was reported by a friend of his that... Uh, Sandy Walker was, had come to him in a very miserable state. 
And uh, Sandy Walker was a lifelong Republican in the sense of being opposed to the monarch, not in the American sense of Republican. So you know, he, he was anti-monarchy. But he said that he had just realized that there were only four countries in the world where you could really, no, sorry, five countries in the world where you could really be free, the Netherlands, the UK, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. And what they had in common was that they were all monarchies. Um, and he found this a very depressing fact. Now, from the point of view of the uh, line of argument I've given, he said, well, maybe it's not random here. Because maybe Simone Weil is right. Maybe we do need hierarchies, but it's better if they're symbolic. And so if we can hive off our hierarchies into these symbolic areas, this gives us much more space. So the last thing I thought I would ever be doing as a philosopher is defending the monarchy. <laughs> but, I, but I do see that there could be a little argument here uh, for that purpose. Okay, well, thank you very much.